There are a lot of people playing audit roulette, right? So, you know, audits are very, very rare. Only one to two percent of all, you know, taxpayers face random audits. And so people play audit roulette. They just take their chances and, you know, the odds are in their favor. But if you do, the IRS would, you know, would disallow it. and You'd have to, you know, fight. All right, so uh, welcome to the Millionaire Enlisted Podcast. Today with Michael Brady. Um, he's a 1031 exchange expert. And uh, just let's dive into the, uh, the sub, today's subject, uh, Michael. So please let us know uh, in our audience, um, what is it that 1031 exchange is and uh, how do you do it? Yeah, sure. So just briefly, so, um, I actually am an attorney by, by training. Uh, and got involved in the qualified intermediary industry in 2005, and I've been doing that ever since. Uh, qualified intermediaries are kind of an integral part of the 1031 exchange process. Now, our company, Madison Exchange, Madison 1031, we go by both. Uh, we do 1031 exchanges nationwide. So what exchanges are designed to do is a, to allow real estate investors to, de- to defer paying capital gains taxes when they sell a piece of property at a profit. Right. Typically, if you sell, you know, something that with a capital gain, and it's a law, if it's a, a, a property you held for over a year, the capital gains tax rates between city, state, and and the federal government winds up being about a third of your profit. So the 1031 exchange, which has been part of the tax code since the 1920s, allows you to take the proceeds from your sale and ro- roll it over into a new investment property and therefore defer paying the capital gains taxes. So essentially, you're going to be able to take tax-deferred money and buy bigger and hopefully more profitable property. That's awesome. So, so let me ask you more a little bit about you. How did you, um, how do you, did you, is this your company? Did you, did you get invited into a company? How, how did you start off? In yeah, the- so Madison Exchange is actually part of a much larger company. So Madison Exchange is, is a, um, a division of Madison Commercial Real Estate Services. Uh, that company has a title insurance company called Ti- uh, Madison Title, which is one of the largest independently owned title insurance companies in the country. And we also have a, a cost segregation company called Madison Specs, which helps investors accelerate their depreciation. So we are part of a much larger company. Um, I had worked for a couple of different companies in this field uh, over a number of years. And I joined Madison about two years ago to kind of head up some of the sales and marketing efforts and to structure some of the more complex exchanges. Got you. But so you handle, as an attorney, you handle more of the legalities as opposed to what a CPA is going to handle on the 1031 front, correct? Yeah. I mean, essentially, I am an attorney, but our role in the transaction is the qualified intermediary is to just be the qualified intermediary. So we're not permitted to give tax or legal advice. If we if we were the taxpayer's own accountant or attorney, we could not do what we do uh, under the regulations. So they still need their professionals, but we have a certain expertise in this because this is all we do, right? So we do several thousand transactions a year. Um, you know, I, in my career, I think I've helped investors defer over a billion dollars in taxes uh, by using Section 1031. And so, you know, we provide guidance to the taxpayers, tax and legal experts, their attorneys and their accountants. That That's awesome. So as far as uh, you being a third party entity that is holding that 1031 uh, in escrow per se, um, how are you providing uh, security to individual who's doing that 1031 um i'm sure you're aware you know there, there's tons of um scams out there 
um, regulation on 1031 intermediaries is not as uh, as regulated. Right. So how are you handling that part to bring that? Yeah, and that's the most important question you can ask whenever you're selecting a qualified intermediary. Number one, we are a largely unregulated industry, as you said. There's a handful of states that have some minimal regulations of qualified intermediaries. And there were some problems back during the financial crisis with companies who you know, were not able to fund their exchanges for a variety of reasons. So typically you wanna ask number one, um, you know, where does the money go? Because we handle and we hold proceeds on behalf of our clients between their sale and their purchase. So we set up, uh, basically put all the money into escrow accounts, right? So we typically have a master account under Madison Exchange's name, okay? And then we have sub-accounts for our clients that bear their name and tax ID numbers. So the funds are segregated and identified at the bank for each particular client, which is very, very important when there are you know, potential bankruptcy issues. Um, additionally, you know, we're part of a much larger company. So we're, you know, we're quite frankly, you know, the smallest part of Madison Commercial Real Estate Services. And so, you know, we have some financial backing as well. Additionally, we are bonded. Uh, we're bonded against any kind of employee theft or mismanagement. Uh, and we have errors and omissions insurance as well. And lastly, you also want to make sure that any company you're dealing with has some expertise in 1031 exchanges, because really anybody can be a qualified intermediary. So, you know, we have three attorneys on staff that are dedicated to 1031 exchanges. Uh, we have um, some accountants on staff as well. And we have three certified exchange specialists as well who have basically proven a minimum level of proficiency by passing a test given by our trade organization, the Federation of Exchange Accommodators. Awesome. Um, so let, let's dive a little bit more if we can into uh, the 1031 process itself and, and how, an, how an investor can benefit from a 1031. Yeah, so anybody that has, first of all, it's important to note, this applies to investment real estate, right? So your primary residence is not going to qualify for a 1031 exchange. This is only for, you know, your rental property, a property that maybe you operate a business out of. Um, it could apply, you know, to even vacant land as long as it's held for investment purposes. So uh, essentially, you need to sell that property to a third party and roll it into another investment property. And we essentially handle the, the, the middle part. So before they do anything, they need to contact us to set up the closing. We take assignment of their contract of sale so that when they close, the proceeds will come to us. They then have 45 days to identify the property they want to purchase and up to 180 days to close on it. Okay. Once they find the property, uh, we take assignment of that contract and we essentially just fund the purchase so that the deeds on each side go directly from seller to buyer. Uh, but for tax purposes, it is viewed as if they just traded one property for the other. Gotcha. Okay. And then as far as, uh, as far as the time limit, um, I get, is the RS regulating that or is that kind of like a self-regulated timeline? Yeah. So we don't report anything to the IRS, but these are hard, fast deadlines. So the taxpayer has to make sure that they meet them. We do police them religiously um, because, you know, it, our reputation is on the line. We have to make sure we abide by the rules. So, you know, that 45 days is a hard, fast 45 days and 180 days likewise, you know, and this is business days, not, I mean, I'm sorry, calendar days, not business days. So it goes pretty quickly. 
So this seems like a very stressful process, according to the <laughs> to the timelines and, and, and the deadlines. Um, are there any expansions in case those deadlines are not being met? Because I mean, we we've done several transactions as well, and and a lot of times those deadlines don't meet because of the uh, uh, whatever is going on on the seller side or whatever is going on on the, on, the, uh, on the on the inspections or whatever the case may be. So can you explain more on that? Yeah, sure. So there are no extensions. The only time the deadlines have ever been extended is when either the taxpayer, uh, their property, uh, or their accountant are located in an area that's impacted by a federally declared natural disaster, right? So, um, you know, in California, you know, there have been extensions for the wildfires. In New York, we had a big extension for Superstorm Sandy. Uh, Colorado, you get blizzards, you know, so those various things are reasons why you might get extensions, but otherwise they're hard, fast deadlines. So if your 45th day is Thanksgiving, well, you have to identify the property by midnight of Thanksgiving, despite the fact that I may be watching football half unconscious from a trip to Fancoma from the turkey I ate all day. Uh, you're still <laughs> going to make sure that you, you get that identification. Okay. Can you, can you identify one property or an asset and then you know, find a different asset and change your mind and still meet in the same timeline? Yeah. So the way it works is you can identify alternate properties. So you can okay. identify in the 45 days, you can identify up to three potential replacement properties regardless of the value. Okay. So that means you could, you know, identify several, you know, properties about the same size as the one you sold, or you can identify several small properties and buy multiple properties. Um, and that's perfectly permissible. And then if one falls out in the, you know, after the 45th day, you would just go on to the next one. Uh, you can exceed the three properties provided the value of what you identified does not equal, uh, does not exceed double the value of what you sold. Okay. They call that the 200% rule. And that's if you sold for a million dollars, you could identify four or more properties provided the total value is not more than double or $2 million in this case. Okay, so that allows you to kind of keep your options open. But after those 45 days have passed, you are locked into whatever you've identified by that point. Gotcha. Okay. And then, you know, sounds like a great strategy uh, to defer taxes. Is there any, any cons, anything, anything investors should know as far as when it's not advantageous to do this? Yeah, well, first of all, you want to make sure that you are, that your plan is sound, right? So, you know, sometimes people get confused on how much they need to spend in a 1031 exchange. They think they only have to reinvest their profit, where really you have to reinvest everything to fully defer your gain. So if you sold for a million dollars, you need to buy a property at a million dollars or more to fully defer your gain. You can go down in value, but you'll pay tax on the difference, okay? So you want to make sure that whatever your plan is, that it makes sense from a tax perspective. Uh, and that's why I always recommend that our clients talk to their accountant before they do anything. Okay. So in all, in other words, and just to make it clear, it doesn't mean that you cannot take cash out of that money. You right. have to invest the total amount and tra basically transfer that capital gains and the, and the uh, initial value of that property to the next one. Right. So both your cost basis, which is what your investment in the property and your profit have to go into the next property to fully defer. If yeah. you, you know, so if you sold at a million and you bought something for 800,000, you would pay tax roughly on 200,000, you know, less closing costs. Okay. Gotcha. So that's why you want to make sure you, you plan. The other thing I always say is, you know, we talked about the deadlines a little bit. 
Um, we do have clients that close, you know, that at the last minute decide to do a 1031 exchange. Well, that's not ideal because if you decided at the closing table to do a 1031 exchange, first of all, my, my uh, staff is not going to be happy with me when I, when I tell them they have to process that or they'll get it done. They'll get it done, you know, lickety split, but uh, you know, we prefer to have a week to two weeks notice, but even more importantly, it also means you only started shopping the day you closed. And those 45 days and you're in the industry, can you find a good property in 45 days? You know, yeah. it's like, you know, it's like starting the Indy 500 in reverse, right? <laughs> so, yes. uh, you know, you want to make sure you get moving quickly and, and, and find that. So I, and lastly, I would say that you never want to buy a piece of garbage property just for the sake of deferring the taxes, right? You can lose a lot more than 30% buying a bad property than you can by paying taxes. And so, uh, you know, it, you want to make sure the property makes sense. That's the most important thing, in my opinion. So let me ask you, as far as um, kind of syndication 1031, yeah. um, if, if you have a passive investor who wants to um, maybe sell a couple properties so that they could invest in a syndication, either as a limited partner or a general partner, um, would that be considered a, a, you know, a correct 1031 exchange to a equal or greater value asset? Or does it change the game? Yeah. So syndication provides some challenges to 1031 exchanges. No, mostly because, as you said, your syndicated deals are typically set up in, in partnerships or limited liability companies. So you have a GP, a general partnership, or you, know, you can be a general partner or a limited partner. The problem in a 1031 exchange is you have to have the same taxpayer on each side of the exchange, which means the party that sells the, the relinquished property has to be the same party that's the tax owner of the replacement property. And buying into a partnership does not qualify. You actually have to have a property interest. So you know, to buy into your traditional syndicated deal as a 1031 investor doesn't make sense in that structure. So what we typically see is that the, the syndicate, the syndicated entity, could bring in 1031 money by having those 1031 investors come in as tenants in common in the property, which means that they would not invest in the limited liability company. They would actually buy a percentage interest in the property. Okay, so you might have, you know, your syndicated entity might own 75% of the property and your 1031 investor would come in and buy the remaining 25%. And they would hold that in a tenant in common relationship. Okay. And so, I'm sorry. So this, the, the tricky part of that is, you know, most syndicated deals, you have a syndicator, right? The syndicator's job is he finds the property. He or she finds the property. Uh, they line up the investors and they manage the property. And ultimately they help with the disposition of the sale. And they usually put in very or little, capital into the transaction, right? Their contribution of, to the deal is usually sweat equity. Um, and so they get a proportion of the profits and they get an equity interest in the property so that they can get some of the upside depreci uh, appreciation on the, on the sale. That doesn't work in a tick structure because there's a revenue procedure that distinguishes between partnerships and tenants and common arrangements. And it says, amongst other things, that if you put 25% into a tick deal, you got to get 25% of the profits. Okay. So, you know, it, it basically goes against many of the things we try to accomplish in syndicated deals. So my, you know, what we can typically do is, you know, the syndicator 
can manage the entire property for both entities. The syndicator can earn a management fee uh, that has to approach what the fair market value of the services are that they provide. And the syndicator can also be a manager of the limited liability company that the 1031 investor owns, which gives them some control over the voting rights, et cetera, et cetera, that they may want in the deal. So typically that's the structure we look at for a 1031 in a syndicate. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's definitely interesting because I know, uh, you know, some of our mentors and the way we, we try to structure the syndication deal is we still provide interest uh, in ownership. Um, yeah, it is. It is with the, the um, entity LLC, right. not with the actual asset. So I mean, that makes it interesting. I was always curious about that because I've never, I haven't really heard anyone hit on the 1031 for syndication. Um, you know, traditionally it seems pretty pretty standard. But uh, yeah, that. Thank you for that. That was uh, yeah, sure. And I always recommend you. You know, some of this there is some gray area in there with with the regard to whether the IRS respects those arrangements. So it's really important that if you're structuring that, you want to get a good tax advisor involved early in the process. You know, to make sure that the structure you know complies with the, the regulations. Gotcha. Okay. No, that that definitely makes sense uh, as far as what we need to do to make it. You know, obviously we want to do things right. We don't want to mess it up. Right. Uh, Jeremy, you, you have any, any questions? There? I do. So um, um, I talk about a lot of, to a lot of investors uh, in regards to the uh, tax advantages that real estate have, right, compared to other uh, investment assets. Can 1031 exchange use, be used for other assets besides real estate? Yeah, unfortunately, no. So we used to do exchanges of other assets before 2017 when the Tax Cut and Jobs Act was passed. It actually eliminated exchanges of personal property. So we used to do exchanges of aircraft. We used to do exchanges of yachts. I actually did a $100 million yacht. Not It wasn't my $100 million yacht. For a client, we exchanged a $100 million yacht for a $150 million yacht. Uh, and that time I tried to convince them as a qualified intermediary, I needed to make sure that those properties were like kind, right? So I needed to spend a week on each of them in the Caribbean. And ultimately, <laughs> ultimately they told me that I wasn't able to do that. And so I just had to uh, basically look at pictures of these pretty boats and, uh, and that was it. But uh, and even when we did personal property, it had to be like kind, which meant if you sold a plane, you had to buy a plane. If you sold artwork, you know, a, a, a painting, you had to buy a painting. You know, so they had to be like kind. So you can never go from one asset to a, you know, you can go from a painting and buy a piece of real estate. Um, and so, but no longer, you know, after the December, I'm sorry, January 1st, 2018, you could no longer do personal property exchanges. Okay. What about stocks? Stocks, likewise, you've never been able to do exchanges of stocks, um, unfortunately for, you know, stock investors. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a separate topic and, you know, you may have already had people talk about this. That is one of the advantages and opportunities Zone has over, you know, 1031 exchanges that people with, you know, inflated stock portfolios can sell that, take their capital gain and, and invest in an opportunity zone. Uh, that's, oh, a whole, you know, another. No, I, yeah, I, I wanted to just touch briefly on that uh, just because I have several conversations with uh, 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 day traders. Okay. And, and I tried to bring it up and I just wanted to get it from, from an expert, um, that your opinion and your, and your uh, expertise on that. So yeah, I just wanted to briefly touch on that. 
Yeah, sure. And that, you know, I would, if they're interested in getting into real estate, they should look at the opportunity zone. That might be a good place for, you know, day traders to go. Although the one problem that day trader has is they typically don't have capital gain because they're, they're cycling their investments so quickly, right? So yeah. if you're buying and selling in under a year, you don't have capital gain, you have income and that's taxable. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So let me ask you, so 1031 um, as a strategy for not paying tax, I mean, you can 1031, I mean, if you do it right, your whole life. Yeah. Right? And then, um, so then what, what happens when you get to the point and you accumulate enough wealth and, and say you, you pass away, um, is there any kind of recapture? Is there, uh, what, what's the strategy moving on from there to say, hey, I want to pass this on to my, the next generation and not have um, everything taken away again? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a, it's a really useful technique. So um, so if you do exchanges during the course of your lifetime, the gain keeps getting deferred and deferred and deferred, and hopefully you're buying bigger and more profitable properties along the way. If you then die owning the appreciated property, your estate gets a step up in cost basis and the capital gain disappears. That's under current tax laws. You always have to watch that. Absolutely. Um, and then your, you know, your state, you have to watch out for estate taxes because they can, be, they can kind of bite you. But uh, right now, the thresholds for estate taxes are very, very high. And so very few people will have to face that. that that's amazing. So essentially, the, the payment, the, the debt that you had to the government for capital gains is wiped. Yeah. Um, and then now is essentially the investor uh, should have already talked to an accountant or, or someone with expertise to say, hey, how can I put this in an estate or some kind of trust to pass it down and not have it, uh, you know, or, or minimize the tax to, to the next generation? Yeah, so good estate planning attorneys can help you get around those estate taxes or minimize them. Um, in a 1031 exchange, you could also, let's say you had multiple children, you could buy multiple properties, right? And they just leave a property to each kid and they can go their separate ways, which might be useful, um, you know, in, in that situation. But we call that swapping until you drop. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like the yeah. term. I really do. Yeah. Uh, and then as far as, um, you know, partners having a property, uh, I mean, either two or, or more and whatever percentage they own it, What if one does not want to do a, a 1031? Um, is there any way, how does that work? Is there any way the, the one that does want to do it could force the other one to do it or can they, you know, divide the income and then one doesn't, one do, does not. How, how would yeah. So if they're in a true taxable partnership, tax partnership, uh, typically, a two-member limited liability company would be a partnership. It's very, you know, the challenge is they cannot basically, they cannot just take the money in. One party does the exchange and the other doesn't because they're both wind up paying taxes. Okay. So we have to get them out of the partnership, which means essentially they have to, basically, we call this a swap and drop. Basically, I'm sorry, drop and swap. I got my got backwards. So you drop out of the partnership into tenants in common. And then as tenants in common, you go your separate ways. Okay. Um, the downside is some of the federal government used to challenge those transactions. It appears they're less interested in them, but some of the states like California 
and New York have continued to challenge these transactions. And so if possible, you want to do this, the drop out of the partnership before you go to contract to sell the property, or maybe even before you list the property. So it's a separate transaction in there, you know, from the actual sale of the property. That, that's interesting. So it, it's a matter of uh, changing your, your entity structure, correct? And then right before you sell to make sure you can, you can take advantage of that. Okay. That, that seems pretty straightforward. Yeah, that, that's good. I, didn't, I had no idea you could do that. <laughs> I thought once you were stuck on, um, on, in, in a certain type of entity, um, you, were, you were stuck in it for a 1031. You couldn't just switch up out of nowhere. Yeah. You know, like I said, it's a little bit risky. Um, and this does not work with S corporations or C corporations. Typically, you know, it only really works with LLCs that are taxed as partnerships. Mm, got you. Okay. And then 1031s um, mainly use, well, not mainly use, but uh, I imagine flippers use them a lot, right? Is that advantageous for them? No, absolutely. No. You know, flippers, anybody who's doing the fix and flip should stay away from 1031 exchanges. Um, this is property that's held for investment rather than resale. So if you're buying on Monday, fixing it up and selling it two months from now, that's not ideal. Or it does, should, you shouldn't stay away from that. So there are a number of factors they look at, but holding period is the most evident factor the IRS will use to determine whether you're holding for an investment rather than resale. And it's generally recommended that if you hold the property for at least two years uh, and rented it for that time, that it should qualify. If it's less than two years, maybe a year and a day, you know, you get into the long-term capital gains rates at that point. So maybe that qualifies, but anything under a year, you know, could invite scrutiny if, if you, uh, if they look at your tax return. That's very interesting. So then what is, what would be a, an advantageous strategy for a flipper that they could do? Yeah, ideally, you know, there's really not a good 1031 strategy other than, you know, fix it up, rent it, and then sell it, you know, at least in the next tax year, if not longer. Um, if you're just going to fix and flip and not do any kind of, you know, holding, 1031 is not, uh, not your tool. Oh, wow. That's interesting. That's a lot of flippers tell me they do 1031. So that's entirely possible. It doesn't mean that, you know, if they got audited, that it would be allowed. So there, there are a lot of people playing audit roulette, right? So, you know, audits are very, very rare. Only one to 2% of all, you know, taxpayers face random audits. And so people play audit roulette and they just take their chances and, you know, the odds are in their favor. But if you do, the IRS would, you know, would disallow it and you'd have to, you know, fight with them. So let's just tell the audience, don't do 1031 exchanges on flips. Unless yeah, you want to assume the risk and, yeah. and, you know, fight that legal battle with uh, the IRS, which no one wins, right? So, <laughs> Yeah, I, I always say once you get audited, you've probably already lost. But there are, you know, real estate is full of cowboys, right? And as long as you have ammunition... <laughs> you can you can go out as a gunslinger, but uh, sure. you know, for the conservative investor, you want to kind of be able, you want to do things a little bit more uh, by the book. Okay, okay. And just to and just to go clear on this, uh, if you have an investment, uh, a long term investment, try to go past that first um, at least one tax year, right? 
Is that what you said? Yeah, generally. And again, there's no set holding period and there's nothing I can tell you is absolutely safe. So yeah. it really depends on your total usage of the property. So, you know, there's a lot of things in the tax code to set that suggests that two years, you know, especially if you have the re- property rented for two years, uh, or at least made the effort to rent for two years, you know, that should be a pretty safe bet. Uh, if you're renting the property for a solid year, but you, you know, and especially again, if, if you bought the property Monday, listed it on Tuesday, rented it out for 11 months, you know, and got into the next year, that may not qualify because you've been trying to sell it for 11 months, right? So they look at everything if you get audited. But if you saw, had solid rental and you get, I call this the godfather defense, you get the offer you couldn't refuse, right? Your intention was to hold the property long-term and to rent it forever. And some guy who comes along and offers you double what you bought the property for, well, you know, you should not necessarily be penalized for that. It's, it was unsolicited. And I think you have pretty good facts there. That's a great point. And what about uh, short-term rentals, which are so common right now? I'm sorry? The, oh, short-term, short-term rentals? rentals? Oh, yeah. your Airbnbs? Yeah. Yeah, so that should qualify. So, you know, as long as it, really what you look at, if you have a property and you're holding it and you're doing the Airbnb thing, um, I don't see that you have a problem qualifying that as being held for investment, provided you are not using the property yourself for personal purposes. Oh, okay. If you do, then you have to look, there's a vacation home safe harbor under, I'm going to throw out some legal jargon here, Rev Proc 2008-16, Okay which basically says you can exchange vacation homes, but you have to hold them for at least two years before the sale. So that's the first, you know, again, we're looking at two years. And in those two years, you must each year rent the property at least 14 days to another person at a fair market rent and use the property no more than 14 days or 10% of the time it's rented. I want to back up some a second because I think I said that wrong. 14 days of rent of rental minimum and use it no more than 14 days or 10% of the time it's rented. That makes sense? Yes, yes, it makes sense. So in the case of those people that are renting their homes, right? They live in their homes, but they're renting different rooms in their houses. Right. It does not count. If you're renting... Yeah, so if you're renting different rooms in your house... You want to really keep good records of that, and you should not be using those rooms when you're not renting them, right? So, you know, this is comparable to, you know, my grandparents came over to the, this country in, in the 50s, and they bought a, a six-family house in, in an area in Queens called Ridgewood. Uh, and they rented out those five units, and they raised eight children in one of those apartments. Don't ask me how, but they did. Um, if they sold that property they would be able to exclude a portion of their gain as their primary residence because it, you know, they lived in it forever. And they could have done a 1031 exchange on the other five units. Okay, so that's clean because you have separate dwelling units. In, a, in something like an Airbnb, um, you really, if you're going to try to do a 1031 exchange, it would only be on the value of the rooms that you used for rental purposes. And so you'd have to kind of get an appraisal based on the square footage and determine what the value of that was and you can conceivably do an exchange on those rooms and then you know exclude from the exchange the prop the per, excuse me the portion of the property that you lived in got it would that be the same case now not not short term but let's say for example somebody who has a a, a, a big property right and they rent long term 
different parts of that property. Let's say, for example, they have a, a shed outside where they rent it for uh, storage or right. different rooms of their of, of their house long term. It, yeah, would that I, be the I, same case where they yeah. have to bring somebody to, okay. Yeah, absolutely. That works. So, you know, the, the, the example of that that you see in the regulations are farmland, right? So if somebody, you know, lives in the farmhouse, but they rent out the farmland to, you know, tenant farmers, you know, the farmland qualifies for 1031 exchanges. Likewise, a storage shed or, you know, whatever you're doing. Uh, even, you know, um, we've had people who uh, buy a house in a college town. So they know their kids are going to go to college at, you know, wherever, you know, Harvard, whatever, you know, that's a big example, but you know, and so they might buy a house and rent it out to a bunch of college students. And one of those students might be their own kid. Right. So ideally the, your, your kid would be paying rent, but we both kind of know that's not realistic. Um, mm-hmm. um, but, and so, you know, to the extent that any values attributed attributed to where your, your child lives, if they're not paying rent, that wouldn't qualify. But to the other tenants, it could qualify. That's very interesting. Yeah. And there were uh, different, different strategies there. <laughs> yeah. 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 Some cool things you could do. We also have people doing this. Uh, let's say I have a client that um, had a factory here in New York where I am. And they, I think they, he made plastic bags. And if you look, plastic bags are not very popular these days. Uh, so seeing that he sold his factory, it's an air in an area of Brooklyn, which is being developed and, uh, sold that factory. He bought a bunch of different properties, including a rental house in Florida. Okay. And his plan was he'll rent it out for a period of time, but then when he's ready, that's where he's going to retire. Uh, so he'll move down there and essentially he's acquired his retirement house through a 1031 exchange and you can do that you want to make sure that you rent it long enough which you know at least two years i would suggest and then he'll move down there that that is really smart yeah, <laughs> yeah it's really smart yeah because i mean you can get your home get it all set up maybe even rent it out for a bit short-term rental in florida right you know second home whatever you want it to be <laughs> that's awesome it's- as long as you have the patience to rent to people, right? So, you know, a lot yeah. of people don't want to deal with the three T's, those tenants, the trash, and the toilets. But if you have that, the stamina to be able to do that for a couple of years, then it makes sense. Man, that's pretty awesome. So let me ask you about, about you. Um, what is, have you, I imagine you've used 1031 in some of your uh, assets or investments? Yeah, yeah, I've used it. Um, you know, the, the the downside is I cannot be my own qualified intermediary, so I've had to work with other people. But uh, I'm not a huge property holder, but I've had a couple. Uh, so 1031 has been useful in that respect. Um, yeah, you know, it's a useful tool, and it, it helps kind of knowing the, the basics. Okay, no, that that's perfect. Um, let's see here. Anything, anything you would recommend off the bat to you know? someone who isn't as familiar with 1031s as far as uh, resources do or don't? Yeah, so we have a wealth of information on our website, which is uh, madison1031.com. We have a blog there called the the 1031 Zone, where I post articles about once a month or so. So that's a good resource for people. Uh, Certainly, if you're thinking about doing a 1031 exchange, you want to start doing homework early. And so I recommend having a good conversation with a qualified intermediary. Uh, early in the process, because we take you through kind of some of the ropes. We can kind of look at some of your plans and, you know, tell you where there might be problems. Um, and also, it, it, you have to get your accountant involved as early as possible. I can't stress that enough. 
you know, a good accountant can make or break any type of tax transaction. And so we love to work with our clients' accountants to make sure that they're in good hands. Perfect. I have a question in regards to uh, professional uh, qualifications to become a, a qualified intermediary. What? How does one become one? Yeah. So as I think of when we were talking earlier, you know, uh, when I heard the term, my first, I as a young attorney, I did a ten thirty one exchange for somebody, and I racked my brains trying to figure out how this whole process works. And so they told me about qualified intermediary. And I, was, I breathed a sigh of relief thinking, oh, here's somebody who's qualified, right? They, this person must have some special training. You know, yeah. maybe they went to qualified intermediary school, which is located next to Clown College, you know, someplace. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and they got, they got the good housekeeping seal of approval from the IRS saying they're qualified. Yeah. Um, you know, so none of that's required. As we said, we're an unregulated industry by and large. And so really, you just have to pass the pulse test, right? They, they take your pulse. And if you have a pulse, you can be a qualified intermediary. So, but the doubt, what you cannot do is you cannot be a qualified intermediary if you are the agent of the taxpayer who's doing the exchange. So that, that's why I cannot be my own qualified intermediary. My own company cannot be my qualified intermediary. My attorney, my accountant, those people cannot be your qualified intermediary. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, no, that, that works perfectly. Well, we want to thank you so much for, for coming on the, the show and explaining this all to us and to the audience. It, it really was, uh, I, I learned tons on here, so I appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. And could you, you know, for the audience, I know you already mentioned madison1031.com, uh, but any other way they can reach you or social media? Yeah, sure. You can, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I forget exactly the designation, but look at Michael Brady. I, I pop up in the top five, especially if you put Michael Brady 1031, you know, I, I might be the only one. You might get that guy from the Brady Bunch too. He might pop up. But yeah. <laughs> uh, so beware of that. I'm not that guy. Um, the And uh, my email address, you can always send me emails to mbrady, like the Brady Bunch, at madison1031.com. You know, I, I answer a lot of questions. I'm a resource for a lot of people, and I'm more than happy to do that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And if uh, you're tuning in, uh, please uh, subscribe either on the YouTube or iTunes, uh, Spotify, you name it. We're on it. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thank you, Michael. Have a good one. You too.